Father, we pray that you would speak your word into our lives. We pray, Lord, we would understand more about how the enemy really does tempt us and how we can overcome that temptation and walk close with you. Lord, I pray for you. Just pray for your spirit to work in every heart now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at how God made Adam and Eve, and that reminded me of a joke. Aren't you surprised? Well, one night, uh, Adam came home late, and Eve was really kind of concerned about where he'd been, and so she asked him, have you been out with another woman? He said, another woman? I mean, you're it. There aren't any more women. Well, anyways, that night he was asleep and he was poking on his chest. He said, what are you doing? She said, I'm counting your ribs. <laughs> well, we've been doing a series entitled God's Grand Plan. And one of the things that we've seen so far is that when God encounters someone whose life is characterized by disorder and emptiness, he wants to move that person to a place first of order and then fullness. God wants us to have fullness. But before he can give us fullness, we must cooperate with him by going, moving from a place of disorder to a place of order. By the way, this applies to every dimension of our lives and our relationships. Disorder to order before emptiness to fullness. Now, God wants us all to have fullness. That's what God wants for each one of us. But the devil hates everything that God loves and God does. So the devil doesn't want us to have fullness. The God, devil wants us to have emptiness. And the devil knows that if he can get us to go from a place of order, God's order, to a place of disorder, then he can also move us from a place of fullness to a place of emptiness. So when we encounter temptation to sin, basically what we're encountering is a temptation to move out of God's order to a place of disorder. Now the devil, of course, has to dress that up and has to deceive us to get us to go there. So the devil must convince us that moving from God's order to disorder is actually not going to bring us to a place of emptiness, but actually is going to bring us to a place of greater fullness. So he's got to deceive us in that. So the devil is in temptation, is promising us that if we do that, we will be happier, more satisfied. We will experience more fullness. But the devil is lying every time he does that. He always gives us emptiness. He never delivers on his promise. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to go back to the book of Genesis and see how the devil tempts Adam and Eve to sin, how he tempts them to go from a place of order to disorder and a place of fullness to end up empty. Now, I want us to keep in mind as we look at this temptation account that Adam and Eve are experiencing fullness when the temptation comes. The devil, of course, wants them to experience emptiness. So what does he got to do? He's got to convince them somehow to be willing to leave God's order and go to a place of disorder 
so he can rob their fullness and give them emptiness. So let's go ahead and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But before we do that, I want you to take a look at this right here. This right here is the bug zapper from our backyard. Now at night, that zapper is on when Tracy and I are sitting out in the back. And you will just hear zap, 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 zap. What is happening as a bug zapper is working is that there are all these bugs that are going toward the light and getting zapped. I don't know what's going on in the bug's mind if he just says, oh, what a beautiful light. I have to get closer. But apparently, you no know, bugs do very much, uh, you know, contemplation about the situation because they don't, you know, notice that on the bottom tray of that blood zapper is thousands of their relatives that have all given in to the lie, the temptation that if you get close enough to the light, you will experience fullness. Instead, they experience emptiness. And they get zapped. Now, I want to get inside the head of a bug for a moment. Because I always think that sooner or later you think there would be a bug that would wise up. There would be one bug that actually look down there and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going there. You see what happened to everyone else that did that? All the other bugs that gave into that temptation, now they're all dead. There is a way that seems right to a bug, but in the end thereof is death. Not one bug ever quoted that verse. They just say the light is so beautiful. But maybe the bug actually says, you know what? I think I can handle this temptation. I think I can get close enough to that light and not get burned. I think I'm different than everyone else who's littered the bottom tray of the bug zapper. But it never works. Bug after bug continues to be zapped by the bug zapper. Now, only a bug would be that stupid, right? Only a bug. Politician after politician, zap, zap, zap. Seems that zapping is a bipartisan activity. <laughs> Fabulous, wealthy athletes, successful pastors, high-profile entertainers, zap, 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 zap. Genesis 3.6 says that when the woman saw the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for wisdom, zap. Now, you got to wonder, every time we read about another person who somehow the media's got the attention, there's some high-profile person who's given in to temptation and destroyed their life, destroyed their marriage, rocked their world, broken up their family, withered their soul, you just think that you just you know, think that most people would say, you know, there, there seems to be a connection here between this, making that decision and ruining your life. My question is, why do we choose so oftentimes to evaluate, just, I mean, to just, to violate our values, the very thing that holds up our lives, sustains our souls, and we voluntarily so often give in to destructive behaviors that, that we know, we know what the end result is going to be, and we still do it. In other words, my question is, why do we fly into the light? Why do we choose to do that? Why do intelligent people engage in stupid, dark actions, knowing that they're going to be ashamed of them afterward. Why do they do it? Well, the Bible says that 
part of the answer is at least that we have a tempter. We have this enemy who's stronger than us, smarter than us, and his identity is that of a tempter, and his fundamental weapon is temptation. And my question to you is, do you really know how he goes about it? Because he always goes about it really the same way. Well, actually, the temptation account we have in Genesis chapter 3 gives us his strategy. And we can actually see how it goes. It's the perfect, excuse me, the perfect test case for the subject of temptation is there in Genesis chapter 3. But the disobedience cannot be blamed on the environment and cannot be blamed on heredity. But we do have a tempter and we do see a strategy. Let's look at it. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, right away, we need to stop and say, wait a second, what did God actually say? Is the devil quoting that verse right? Well, no, let's back up and see what God said. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So actually in Genesis chapter 2, the goodness of God is so apparent. God says, freely eat from any tree in the garden. I mean, get a load of this. It's like you can eat from any tree freely. All these trees, all of them are yours to eat freely. Except there's just one. There's just one tree. There's one test. Don't eat from that tree. That's all. Only one test. Only one tree. But what Satan says is, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any trees of the garden. Now, do you see what the devil's trying to do here? I mean, and I say, how do you say, how do you know it's the devil? Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 identifies the serpent as the devil in disguise. So we know it's the devil. The devil's trying to get Eve to begin to suspect that God's holding out on her. God is not really good. He's holding out on you. In fact, he won't let you do anything. Not any tree. I mean, what kind of God is that that would hold out on you like that, Eve? What Satan's trying to do is to plant in Eve's mind the suspicion that God is not good. All sin begins the same way. All sin begins with a suspicion that God is not good. His ways are not good. So I'll choose to do another way. See, that's, the, that's where the devil always starts with temptation is get us to begin to become suspicious about the goodness of God. Well, Eve comes to God's defense, Genesis 3, 2, and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, from the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? 
See, God didn't say anything about touching it. By the way, that's, I think that's one of the mistakes a lot of Christians make. Is not only do they strive to keep the commandments of God, but they think they're actually holier if they go beyond those commandments. And they add restrictions that God hasn't even added. And when they do that, there's actually a grave danger to doing that. You know, there are a lot of things that God has given us freely to enjoy. And there's many legalistic Christians who have decided you shall not even touch that. And by the way, what those things are vary from culture to culture around the world. And what you'll find out is that those legalistic Christians also tend in those cultures to have a, I think, a high degree of joylessness. And which makes them even more vulnerable to temptation. Well, Satan has gotten Eve to focus now on the one thing she cannot have. By the way, that's another thing that the devil tries to do in temptation. He tries to get us to focus on that one thing. That one thing that's prohibited. And when he gets us to focus on that one thing that's prohibited, then we start to, then we don't even notice all of the other blessings that we're drowning in. I mean, sometimes you wonder how some people who, you know, that you, you know that they love God, but how can they turn their back on all the blessings that they have surrounding their lives and go after that one forbidden thing? How can they do that? Well, the reason they can do that is because they've lost their focus on all the other ways they're being blessed and all their, their whole focus is that one thing. I've talked to men, many men over the years who are having an affair. And I've said to them the similar thing. I said, you mean you're willing to trade your family, your reputation, all you know, your close friends, your church, your self-respect, you're willing to trade all of that for that other woman. And I just remind them, I mean, you're, you got, you're surrounded by blessings. You're giving all those blessings up. Don't you see it? That's the point. They don't see it. See, the devil's got them to focus on that one thing they can't have, and they don't even see all the blessings they do have. And that's his strategy here with Eve and Adam. Get them to focus now on that one thing. And they don't even notice all the blessings they're surrounded by. So stage one of temptation, plant a suspicion that God is not good. He's holding out on you. Stage two, get that person to focus on that one thing. So that when they tend to daydream, they're dreaming about that one prohibited thing. So the devil has gotten Eve to think, well, God's ways must not be good. And if God's ways are not good, then that means God's word is not true. Notice the next thing he says. The devil says, Genesis 3, 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. Satan says, you, you can have what you want. It doesn't matter. What God says, you're not really going to die. <laughs> His word's not really true. 
There's not even going to be any consequences to your action. Everything's going to be fine. By the way, how many books and movies have this theme? Where people live in just deep disobedience the whole movie, and everything just ends up just fine. They didn't die. They surely didn't die. There wasn't consequences for all that sinful activity. That's a lie. They do die, and they will die. See, Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar. So he says that God's ways are not good, suspicion God's not good, and his word is not true. There's not going to be consequences. You can have it all. You can do that. You can have that forbidden thing, and you won't, you won't face any consequences. It's going to be okay. Genesis 3, 5. He continues. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He attacks God's goodness. He attacks God's word. He's saying, you know what? The reason God gave you that command, you know why? Is because God doesn't want you to have any fun. God uh, wants to keep you on a tight leash. I mean, he's really not good. He doesn't really want you to experience all of the wonderful abundance. He wants to deny you pleasure. He wants to show you who's in control. He wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to have any excitement in life like other people seem to be having. He's just a cosmic killjoy. So you can't have those experiences that others are having and having so much enjoyment. So God isn't really good. He's got, he's really got ulterior motives and he's got a hidden agenda and it's actually an evil agenda. So now the devil has done this work. He's actually planned the suspicion that God is not good. His word is not true. And once the devil gets you there, once the devil gets you to start to doubt the goodness of God, therefore doubt the word of God, you're on the slippery slope to sin, to give in to sin. Now, how easy does, does that happen? You know, something difficult happens in your life and you start to question the goodness of God. You start with that why question. And that why question is a dagger pointed at the heart of God. Why? So many times when we ask why, we're starting to be suspicious about whether he's good or not. Why? Why did you do that? Did you let that happen? So when we doubt God's goodness, when we start to doubt his goodness, we'll start to doubt his word. And then we're on a slippery slope, and the devil's work is done. His work is done. Verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her. He's, here, he's there the whole time. Like, seems like a doofus Adam. I mean, you're just there. Aren't you going to say something? And he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So they gave in to the temptation and it destroyed their lives. It cursed all of creation. They did die. They died spiritually separated from God, thrown out of the Garden of Eden. All because 
I started to doubt the goodness of God. That's where it all started. You know, their eyes were open that day, but the promise of divine enlightenment did not come. They did know more, but the additional knowledge was evil. They attempted then futilely to cover themselves with leaves in their shame. What happened? They went from order to disorder. And therefore, they went from fullness to emptiness. That's what happens when we give into temptation, and it always happens. The consequences were heavy. The consequences of sin are always heavy. They had God's order, and they had fullness with it. But then they were deceived by the devil to believe they could leave God's order and still have even greater fullness. That's how temptation works. That's the devil's goal for you. That's his goal for me, is to get us to believe that lie. Begin to suspect that God's not good. Sin ruins lives. It always has and always will. Let me ask you a question. Just between you and God in your own mind, where are you most vulnerable to sin? Some psychologists did an experiment many years ago in which they took a group of four-year-olds and one at a time they brought them into a room and they put one marshmallow on the table and they said, I'm going to leave the room and you can eat the marshmallow while I'm gone if you want. But if you wait till I get back, I'll give you two marshmallows. And so what they did after that is they had the you know, grab the marshmallow, marshmallow kid, you know, and eat it quick. And then they had the group of kids that resisted the temptation and, uh, you know, delayed gratification for the two marshmallow group. They kind of, and then they studied how the rest of their lives went. Interesting experiment. The amazing thing is that those who resisted the temptation at the age of four grew up to be more socially competent, more decisive, to ha- have a higher level of self-esteem, less anger management problems, a lower rate of delinquency, and a lower rate of divorce than the grab the marshmallow kids. Interesting. Well, my question for all of us today is, what is your marshmallow? What is your marshmallow? And aren't you tired of flying into the light? Now, if the devil would have come to Eve that morning with some papers and said, just, just sign these papers that you're through with God. She would have never signed them. When the devil comes to us with temptation, he never comes dragging the chains behind him that will confine us. He always comes bringing a crown that will ennoble us. He comes offering us pleasure expansiveness, money, popularity, freedom, enjoyment. In fact, he never really says there's any consequences at all. Just do that and it'll, it'll fill you, fill your desires, your pleasures, your satisfaction. But when we begin to believe the lie that God, God is not good, then we begin to suspect his word is not true. And then we're on the slippery slope into sin, and it's always to our peril.
So the question is, will you trust him and his order for fullness? Will you say, Lord, I believe your order is the way to fullness. Obeying you, Lord, is the way to fulfill abundant life. Will we trust him or will we give into the distractions and these temptations, this deception and to begin to believe that, no, I think there's a better way. I'll do it another way and give into disorder and then experience the emptiness that comes. That's the choice all of us face, the temptation. Now, as we close this message, some of you are sitting here thinking, you know, I already, I've already given into this tempt- a certain temptation, and I've, I'm feeling the emptiness of it. I feel it right now. I feel the shame of it right now. Well, I want you to understand how to get back to a place of order from disorder so you can get back to a place of fullness from emptiness. Now you can leave here today with no shame and no emptiness in the beginning of walking in God's order. We actually have, before I show you how to do it, let me show you how not to do it. Here's the way not to do it. Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are hiding in fear and shame. And they're covering up their shame. They're covering it with fig leaves and loin coverings as they hide from God. See, some of you here, some of you that are online, some of you, some of you that are online, you're online because you're, 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 you're in so much shame, you, you don't even want to come in this building. Some of you have given into a temptation and living with shame and, are, and you've been hiding from God. You've been hiding by the way, you can be stuck in that place for a long time. Some people, I've known people for decades that have been hiding in shame. Living in deep shame, hiding from God. And what, what does God want? God wants this. God wants one, just very simply, God just wants an honest confession to him. That's all. Not blaming someone else or something else that Adam and Eve started doing, if you remember the account. Just an honest confession. That's what God's looking for. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in order to do that, you've got to come out of hiding. You know, it's possible, really, for people to attend the same church week after week, month after month, year after year, sit in the same seat, smile with the same people, and inside... You know, their marriage is crumbling, their life is a wreck, or there's some deep, dark, secret sin they just have been hiding and holding on to. I want to tell you a story real quick before we close of someone who came out of hiding after he was hiding for many, many months. He was hiding in shame and hiding from God. His name is David, King David, actually. He was called a man for God's own heart, loved God passionately, loved to worship, loved to learn, loved to lead the people of God. Very, very, very capable man, but also capable of great sin. One day he committed adultery, and they tried to cover it up. When the husband of the woman with whom he had the affair would not go along with David's cover-up, 
then David had him killed. And then David just went on his life. He just went on his life for several months, we know, because it wasn't until after the baby was born that this happens with David, this scene. He's, he's leading this, he's still leading the people of God. He's still leading in worship. He's still calling on the name of God. But inside him, we do know from Psalm 32, Psalm 38, he's being eaten up. He's being eaten up like a cancer with his shame and his guilt. But one day, Nathan, the prophet, came to him and said, David, I want to tell you a story. The story is about a certain wealthy man. I mean, he had so much stuff, he, I mean, he couldn't even spend it all. And he had some friends come over for dinner, and there's a poor man living next to him who had one little lamb. Well, the wealthy man, even though he had so much he could have used to entertain his guests with, feed him, he went to his neighbor, took the one lamb, stole it, and fed it to his friends and left the poor man with nothing. So then Nathan asked David, what should happen to that man? That rich man, David said. First, it says he, David was indignant. David said, that man ought to die. And Nathan said, you're the man. You did that. Now, David, at that point, David could have actually had, you know, Nathan done away with and continued to hide his sin. But at this point, David finally comes out of hiding. And he falls before God and cries out, I'm the man. Repents and confesses. And then Nathan says some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Nathan just pronounces over David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You came out of hiding. You confessed it now. The Lord has taken away your sin. Well, as we close here in just a moment with this ministry time, this is a day for some of you to come out of hiding. It's to come out of hiding before the Lord and to walk out of here with that no more shame and no more guilt. And just to be honest before God and to come to him. Say, Lord, just confess it. Lord, I've been holding on to this. I've been living this thing, whatever it is. And no one's going to ask you today what it is. But you can tell, you need to tell God what it is. But I want to ask us to stand here for a moment. Jose, if you come back up here, the keyboard, there's a song that says, come to the altar. And this ministry time here basically is that a time just to say, you know what, Lord? I'm not walking out of here with this. I'm, I'm done with this. Whatever it is, whatever this is. And it's different for different people. But there's something that you may be carrying. You say, Lord, I just, today I'm coming out of hiding and saying, okay, Lord, I, I, I'm going to give this, I'm giving this up, I'm confessing it to you, and I want your ways in this. I want your order, not my disorder. I need your fullness. I'm tired of the emptiness. So I'm going to pray, but I urge you guys, don't leave here. Don't keep hiding it. This is the day to finally be done hiding, whatever it is. Father, you know exactly what it is with each and every one in this room who's struggling right now, who's wrestling, who even right now knows, oh Lord, that this is a word from you today, that you're speaking right to them today. Lord, they know it. And so, Lord, I pray for the grace now to just come out of hiding and just repent and confess it. 
and be done with it. Be done with it. Finally be done with it. So Lord, would you enable us now to just really, by the power of your spirit, just come be honest before you. Come out of hiding. No more fig leaves. Just be honest with you about our sin, whatever it is. And so Isaiah sings a song. If that's you, just slip out and just, this is an altar here. Just make this the altar. Come to him. Just do business with him. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is coming. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is coming. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Some of you know it's you and you're still in your seat. Just come out of hiding. Don't fight it. This is the day. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, oh, oh. oh come to the altar. The Father's arms are open. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus. Invite some of you to come to lay hands on these here. Just come lay hands on, pray for them. These are our brothers and sisters. We're all in this together. Come on up. Let's begin to pray for them. Thank you, Jesus. As Nathan pronounced over David, I'm pronouncing over all of you. You've come forward. You've come out of hiding. You've come before the Lord with confession. And I just pronounce over you, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. No more shame. 
No more guilt, no more hiding. And Father, we pray this week that all of us would be mindful of how to walk in fullness. It's by walking in your order. Your ways are always the right ways, all the time. So Lord, we just pray that each one of us would just really, this week, walk in the path you have for us for the good of your name. Magnify your name in all that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name.